Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Hey, uh, long before things like PlayStation, Nintendo, Xbox uh, was used to kind of capture and entertain and amuse, uh, there was an analog version that parents used to keep their kids busy and uh, to entertain them on trips or at home. Uh, there are these, these workbooks called dot-to-dot workbooks. And if you remember those, uh, these dot-to-dots where you would have a picture like this one right here, we'll put it up here, uh, just a random collection of dots. I have no idea what this picture is. I know that disturbs some people. Sorry, this isn't going to resolve for you. I have, I have no idea what that picture is, uh, but you know, you, know, you know the drill if you've done this before. If you've never done it, you, you should get one of these. It's, it's pretty fun. You, you, it's a random collection of chaotic you know, dots with numbers by them, but you take your pencil, not a pen, a pencil, and you get to number one, you find the first dot, and then you track a line very carefully to dot number two, and then you go to dot number three and four, and what appears to be chaos slowly begins to come into vision and, and and, and, and a picture is re- revealed. Here's another one, another picture, a lot more dots. Again, I have no idea what this picture is. It just appears very random. Uh, next one's a screenshot of a picture. We actually have some video here to show you just how this, this picture here that, um, you know, it just looks chaotic, but you start connecting the dots and um, something comes into view. And, and anyone, anyone guess what it is? Bay, Bay Bridge, yeah, Bay Bridge, I think Bay Bridge or Golden Gate Bridge or one, one of those bridges, that it's the, the one over here on the right that's slowly coming in, it's, that's the clue. Um, but you can kind of see it coming together and it's, it's pretty spectacular. But then uh, but here's another one, uh, a screenshot. Anyone guess what that one is? Okay, we'll just fire, fire it up, we'll see it here. Shout it out. Yeah, Taj Mahal, someone got it over here, yeah. Taj Mahal. It looks just chaotic dots, but then you start going from dot one, you go to dot two, dot three, dot four, and it all begins to take shape. And what once appeared as chaotic and random and had no connection, you start connecting all the dots, and there's this unveiling, this revealing. And if you understand that metaphor, you you will be able, it will help you understand this next book that we're going to be looking at. Uh, We're going to be studying the book of Esther for the next uh, six weeks. And uh, Esther is a book that is, it's, it's pretty interesting because it's this random characters, uh, storyline, random plots, and, um, and it, just, it just seems like uh, all, this, all this information that, you know, you just can't really understand what, what this book is really about until you get your pencil, get the dot number one, go to two, go to three, go to four, and what you end up seeing is you see this picture of, of God being at work. It's a book in the Bible where God's name's not even mentioned. It appears that he, he's not even there until you start connecting the dots. Um, we, we, we've been talking about books uh, or looking at characters from books that, um, that were written during the exilic period. What I mean by that is a period of exiles. We looked at Daniel in the fall and we're looking at Esther now and we're doing that on purpose because most of us understand there've been some significant shifts in culture and that there was a time when the church had strong influence in the center of culture, and a culture kind of circled around the church, but now the church has been moved to the margins, to the, to the periphery, and, and there's something in us sometimes that wants to take back and get back to the center, and uh, what we're learning from these people who lived in exile is actually their significant opportunity at the margins, 
There's opportunity at the periphery that God does some pretty amazing things at the edges of, of, of society. And so that's why we're looking at, at, at these books to kind of discover those opportunities. Uh, here's a picture of, uh, kind, of, kind of captures a little bit of historical backdrop to the story. Uh, 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom, Israel is captured and people are sent into exile. They're the far north there by, by Nineveh. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem uh, and exiles people. Uh, Daniel is one of those exiles and he's taken to, to, to Babylon. Uh, 536 BC, uh, Babylon, Babylonia is conquered by Media and Persia, uh, the Medes and the Persians, and Cyrus the Great, some of you know this from your Bible reading, issues a very a significant decree and says, you know what, if you're in exile, you can go back to your homeland uh, and people like Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel go back and start rebuilding uh, a country that's war-torn. And yet he also, Cyrus also allows exiles to stay in their homes, to stay right where they are. And many do because life is fairly comfortable. Um, it's hard going back to uh, Jerusalem. It, it's, it's chaotic. It's a mess. And so there's comfortability. And, um, and around 480 B.C. is when the story of Esther takes place. It happens in, uh, in, in Persia, which today is modern-day Iran. The exiles were sent to uh, what is modern-day Iraq and Iran. And if you see the P on, on Persia, just go just above it. That's where Susa would be. And that's the setting for this story. Now... In this story, what, what's, what you're going to see is that God's people are in danger. There is a genocide that's about to, to be planned. God's people are in danger. And if you've read any of the Bible, you know that when God's people are being attacked or when God's people need a rescue, that God comes through in dramatic fashion spectacular fashion. I mean, there's Gideon, and Gideon is, is this guy who's a nobody, and an angel shows up and tells him that he's going to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites. The Midianites are taking advantage of Israel, and there's so many of them, they can't even be counted. And at the end of the story, Gideon is going to conquer Midian with 300 men, 300 men against an army that can't be counted, and it's an amazing uh, work of God. Or there's Samson, that's kind of an unusual story. Samson has this, this superhuman strength and he delivers Israel from the Philistines. Uh, but then there's the most impressive deliverance. There's the story of the people who are enslaved in Egypt, the Hebrews. And they're being oppressed and they're crying out and God hears their cry and he calls a man from a burning bush and sends Moses down to Egypt to deliver his people. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh won't. So God sends 10 plagues. And by plague number 10, Pharaoh says, okay, he relents. And the people start heading out of Egypt. But then Pharaoh changes his mind, sends the special forces after those people. And the people are backed up against the Red Sea. They're cornered. And it looks like their, their worst nightmare is going to be a reality. They're going to be wiped out. But then Moses takes his staff and he strikes the water and the sea splits and the people of God walk through the Red Sea. They get to the other side, but they're being chased by the Egyptian army. And they're in the Red Sea and at just the right moment, the sea walls collapse and the enemy is defeated and the people break into song and dancing. Miriam writes her song and it's a high moment. And the people are delivered. It's spectacular. It's dramatic. And then you got manna in the morning. You got a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Water coming from a rock. It's unbelievable. It's amazing how God delivers. And if you've ever need deliverance 
and you've cried out to God and you've read stories of the Bible and you've heard stories of other people who have had amazing deliverances and miracles and you've looked at your life and you didn't get a miracle, you're frustrated. And if that's you, you're gonna love this book. Because in this book, there's no miracles. God's name is, isn't even written in this book. There's no prayer. There's no dreams. There's, there's, there's nothing. There's no prophecy. I mean, Daniel's in exile, and Daniel gets dreams. Daniel his three friends, I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown into a fiery furnace, and God shows up in the furnace, and not even a hair on their head is singed. Amazing, dramatic. Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den, and the angel shuts the lion's mouth. Unbelievable rescue. None of that in Esther. And if you've ever been frustrated and you've ever wondered, God, where are you? You're going to love this book. You're going to love this book because this book teaches us the, the, the doctrine of providence. But one, one writer, I think, really captures the definition of the doctrine of providence very well. He says, providence is God acting anonymously. It's just this, it just seems like God can't be found. See, the writer of Esther, when, when they get done at the very end and they're reading the manuscript, they don't go, oh no, I forgot to mention God. Oh no, I, for, I forgot to mention prayer. No, 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 no. It's a literary device. They want us to understand that God can't be seen because sometimes when you're going through life and you're facing suffering or you're facing a difficulty and you're wondering where God is, God doesn't split the Red Sea. God often acts anonymously. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna lean into this book and we're just gonna see this random collection of dots, storylines, characters, a plot, and they'll just seem disconnected until you go to dot number one, you connect it, connect it to dot number two, and you put your pencil on two, and you get the three and four and five, and slowly the picture begins to come to shape, and you find out, ah, oh, God has been there all the time. I just didn't see it. So this morning, what I'm going to do is we're just going to dive right into the book of Esther, and I'm going to read chapter one and chapter two. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, grab them. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, go, to, go to page 417, and you will get to the book of Esther. Um, for some of you, it helps you stay awake when you put your finger and kind of follow along as I'm reading. Um, that's okay. Others of you, you know this story. Maybe it's the story, first time you've ever heard this story. You can close your eyes and just sort of imagine as I'm reading. And uh, if you nod off, that's okay. No, no, no harm done there. Um, but I, I want you just to kind of enter the story. I want you to feel the story as, uh, as Esther begins to become unveiled to us. So I'm reading chapters one and two. We'll dive right in here. Uh, chapter one, verse one. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. 
When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fashioned with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was was in high spirits because of the wine, that's the Bible's way of saying he's intoxicated, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, bummer name, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mamukin, seven nobles of Persia and Media. They met with the king regularly and held the highest positions of the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Mamukin answered the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So, if it please the king... We suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes, that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense, so he followed Mamukin's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Let's hit the pause button there. It's intermission. Stand up. Stand up. Turn to the person on your right and say, this is not a marriage uh, instruction book. Okay? We'll get me clear here. This is not wise counseling going on right here. Okay, you can have a seat now. Got your popcorn, got your water. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
I just didn't want him to have the wrong idea. Okay, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. He, guy, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. Of course it was. So he put the plan into effect. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was the descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those with King Jehoiachin of Judah who had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, uh, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Hegai's care. Hegai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. And that evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms. And the next morning, she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There, she would be under the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Hegai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in his home. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the, of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. 
She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. And this is God's holy word. God is at work despite appearances. If you've ever been at a time in your life where you've wondered where God is, friends, you're not alone. The psalmist, Psalm chapter 10, verse 1, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I am in trouble? Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 45 uh, writes this, Truly you are a God who hides himself, the God and Savior of Israel. God, where are you? If you ever asked that question, God, where are you? Then that's something that's been asked of God. Yes, God sometimes delivers in very dramatic, spectacular fashion. I love those moments. I love it when the sea parts. I love it when he provides so mysteriously. I love it when he breaks through. I love the miracles. But friends, God often, he often acts anonymously. And sometimes we come to the conclusion that he's, 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 he's missing, he's abandoned me. He's silent. And, 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 and God, I want to tell you that God is at work despite the appearances. It isn't until you put the pencil to paper and you start taking what appears to be all these random events, some good, some not good, and start connecting them that the picture of his activity among us becomes, becomes visible. I mean, just, just look at some of these uh, in this story. We'll just put them up here on the screen. We'll start connecting the dots. Xerxes calls for a banquet. That's how the book begins. 180 days of a giant party, and then seven extra days, no limits on the food and drink, which then leads to the second dot. Xerxes gets drunk. Now, I mean, can I just say this to you? Do you realize that it is crucial to this story? It is crucial to the deliverance of the people, of, of, of the Jews in, in, uh, in, in Persia. It is crucial that Xerxes gets drunk. I, I'm not saying that God, you know, encouraged him to get drunk. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that something that we would look at as negative and say, that's not right. Actually, God will use the not rights in life and he will redeem them and use them for the, his purposes as kingdom advance. And oftentimes we look and we see things happening in our neighborhoods, in our family, in our city, our state, our nation, and we go, that's not right. How could that happen? Where is God? Friends, Sometimes the things that we just get ah, repulsed by or we say, ah, that's not good. God is actually using those things to advance his kingdom. Third dot, Vashti is summoned to be paraded. Let me just tell you this because there, there are some scholars who believe that when these drunk men send the message to the women's party, to have Vashti come and be paraded in front of the men. That, um, that some scholars believe that this is a request that, that she would do and she would come in and she would be naked with only the crown on her head. That she would be a victim of objectification and exploitation. And Vashti draws a line and says, no, not doing it. And can I also say that conservative theologians... Evangelical theologians, liberal theologians, feminist theologians, most theologians look at this story and in chapter one, two, and three, that they see that Vashti actually is the hero. <laughs> Esther is made queen. She wins. And then, then the story, Mordecai is promoted to palace official 
And then Mordecai discovers an assassination plot to kill Xerxes. And there will be more dots. We'll just fill the screen here. You'll see them kind of going all the way across. And the reason that we're, that we're doing that is because God often acts anonymously. And it isn't until you take these coincidences just so happens that there's banquets. It just so happens that the king is intoxicated. It just so happens the queen is summoned. And all these random events don't take place. Esther doesn't get to the place where actually we'll see in chapter four that she actually turns a corner and starts to realize that perhaps this is a moment where she is gonna stand for God and her people. But friends, can I just say to you, you may be at one of those points in your life where you're wondering where God is. Friends, God is at work despite appearances. He often acts anonymously. Oh, yes, we love the breakthrough moments. I mean, the Bible's full of them. We share them often. But oftentimes, it's in the daily grind. It's in the weekly disappointments. It's in the weeping that we're crying out and asking God, where, where are you? And if you find yourself there today, take heart. He's at work. He hasn't forgotten you. The second thing I want you to know from this story, well, I won't spend a bunch of time on this, is that while God is at work despite appearances, the world is obsessed with appearances. The world is focused on externals, and God looks at the internal. First Samuel chapter, chapter 16, a man looks at, at, at the outside, God looks at the heart. And our world is obsessed with the externals. You get status by the color of your, your, your skin. You get status by the size of your bank account. You get, you get, uh, you get noticed by the size of your dress. You get, you get noticed by your credentials. You get, you get all the status by, by maybe the job you're working at or where you live or the dream house that you're in. Our world is obsessed with appearances. And we put ourselves through the beauty treatments. We chase after things. And unknowingly, what we end up doing is we end up capitulating to the pressures of culture. Jesus, speaking to that very thing about our pursuit of stuff, says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus speaking this to people who are obsessed with stuff and gaining in this world and neglecting the life everlasting. Begin making a list of the coincidences in your life. Get the good ones and the bad ones, the painful ones. Start making a list. This happened, that happened, and this happened. And friends, I, go back as far as you can remember. Start thinking, and here's what you're gonna see. You start putting your pencil to the paper and go from it just so happens to it just so happened to it just so happened, and my guess is that you're gonna go, oh my goodness, I never saw it. God's been at work. Let's pray. So Lord, as we begin this study, we acknowledge that we, we love the spectacular. We love the dramatic. And sometimes, Lord, you, you do that. And we love to give you honor and glory for what you're doing. 
but we are people that you've called to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's hard for us. So increase our faith, encourage our hearts. Thank you for not condemning us or shaming us. Thank you for second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and on it goes. Build us up in the faith as we look at your activity among us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.